This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tomes, Amazon, and DM Skilled affiliate links, and our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for March 2020. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book this time around is Pawn of Prophecy by David Eddings. Uh, this was recommended by, or it was recommended by a patron that we look at the works of David Eddings. Um, so here we are. Uh, this is where we decided to start. Uh, in the next episode, in two months, so that's... April, May, May of 2020, um, we will be reading the second book of the Dragonlance Chronicles series, uh, Dragons of Winter Night by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. And joining us for this book club episode with us as always is Eric Paquette. Bonjour, hello. How are you doing, folks? Doing well. <laughs> Hanging in there. Um, <laughs> and I'm also doing joined- good. Awesome. And also joining us for a special treat, we have Tome Show social media manager, Ishmael Alvarez. Hello. Nice to be on as usual. Nice to have you. And our Tome Show news anchor, Lewis Brenton. Hello, friends. Glad to be on the show tonight. Glad to have you. And this is the first book of a classic fantasy series by David Eddings called Belgarad. It was originally published in 1982 and it's part one of a five-part series all written in the three years between 1982 and 1984. And it's also worth noting to our listeners that we at the Tome Show have been streaming many of our episode recordings over at twitch.tv slash Tome Show. The easiest way to get notified is to follow us on Twitch or on Twitter. Uh, Everything we stream will eventually be edited and released as a podcast, though, so don't worry if streaming isn't your thing. That's right. I was amazed when I uh, looked up the information about the Belgariad uh, to see that it's five books, and the first two came out in the same year, and this and the last two came out in the same year. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? That is nuts, <laughs> right? Five books in three years. <laughs> like, how did he, how did he know the first we're book? Not, was gonna we're be not we're not that, are we? No. Oh my yeah. god. How do, and how does he know that the first book is going to be popular enough that it's going to get picked up for a sequel? in the first, you know, that he because he had to have been writing it long before it came out. So it was amazing. I think it was a wild time where people were actually paying for uh, fantasy novels and they were, people were like, no, okay, this one's good. Put out another one. We need another one right yeah. now. And we're, we're kind of seeing that. Well, we saw that in like the last few years, which is good. Well, and it's possible. Uh, David Eddings has written more than just the Belgariad in terms of a series. So I don't know his, his uh, uh, history well enough to know how many series he had written before this. You know, if you get a decently popular author, he may have just had a five-book contract that he knew the second one and third one were coming out, and he could just plow through writing them. I don't know. But anyway. That's true. Before before we dig into this book, I do want to say thank you to all of our patrons who support us at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. A big shout-out goes to the patrons who support us and to help us pay the bills that make the show possible. Special thanks goes out to Doug Palmer, Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelche, and Eric Blackman. Thank you for your support and being the best darn patrons ever. 
They help make this possible. In fact, with the, the recent addition of Merrick, who was our most recent patron, we are really close to reading, reaching the goal where even if somebody comes to me and offers to, to sponsor the show, um, if we hit that level, then, then the answer is no. Our patrons are our sponsors, and that's the only sponsors we have. So we're very close. If anybody wants to, to jump on, even for as little as a, a dollar a month, that, uh, that helps us get there. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. All right, so let's talk about the book. Uh, book one of the Belgariad, Pawn of Prophecy. Uh, who wants to tell us, start off anyway, telling us what this book is about? You've got a setup here where the, the story begins with a creation myth in the kind of the prologue part of the book. But uh, ultimately, the story is about uh, factors in history that, are, that have been moving together across the centuries and millennia. And it's all coming to a head at this exact moment uh, with our protagonist or at least our point of view character. I don't know if is he I guess he's the protagonist, uh, Garion. Um there, it ends up having so many characters, but almost everything's from his point of view, I, I think. So, uh, but uh, he is—he finds himself stumbling into the middle of this massive, massive moment in prophesied history. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you talk about it being a story that's about the confluence of all of these uh, events through history uh, around this this time with this one boy. Uh, I think I would have described it as it's a story about this boy uh, more than these these historical <laughs> events. Uh, sure, sure. But but yeah. but, it, but I, I think that's an actually an interesting point because I'm not sure how David Eddings would have described it. Like he spent a lot of time in the prologue and in the beginning, uh, and even in the first few chapters from from his, the the character's point of view, like really. describing sort of this deep 7,000 year history uh, and this creation uh, story and and all of this this lore um, that seems to be really important, in my mind anyway, seems to be really important to to the author. Yeah, no question. uh, I appreciate his... He does background here, not not nearly to the degree that some of the guys like our Tolkens and our uh, even our George R. R. Martins do in some of their stuff. But uh, he tells you what you need to know, and it, it 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 puts the dust of history on the story in a good way. So that's sort of a, a good overview. But what happens in this book, Eric? It looked it sounded like you were about to say something. The way that I read it more is that the book is, as you said, it's more Hungarian and it's, it's it's coming of age as he's 18. He's being raised by his aunt, Paul. And uh, and most of the time it's just him on the farm doing stuff and then meeting up some characters, uh, like the storyteller, which we learned later on as Mr. Wolf. And then something gets stolen in a magical orb and off they're going on their adventure. So uh, it felt a lot like to me, like the first book of the Lord of the Rings, which would oh. be like the first half of the fellowship right, so right before they get to, to River, Rivendell, where mm-hmm. basically it takes a while before getting into the journey. And then when they get into the journey, they get somewhere and then, but it seems to be set up to, for later books. Well, and, and even more than that, I, like I also 
very clearly drew the comparison to Fellowship of the Ring and that first half. And I would argue it ends in the Council of Rivendell with the Council of all these these kings meeting in this in this book, right? Uh, it's a little more eventful. Yeah. Like there's there's antagonists uh, within the events at the at the end. Um, whereas at Rivendell, it was kind of a, a calm before the storm. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Like you've got this this relatively innocent young person uh, living a provincial life out on the out in the country, uh, and then an old guy with immense power and way more wisdom than he has the right to have shows up and turns his life upside down, right? And now you've got to go on a journey with an eclectic group of, of people who, you know, in a fellowship style are going to travel with you and, and become your buddies and train you and protect you and do all those things. And it's kind of interesting, too, because a lot of times we get these stories where, you know, you don't know who that person is or you don't know. And he has obviously doesn't know who he is yet in the big story, but he finds out everyone around him is like basically royalty or people of legend. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they slowly form this entire party, and it turns out every single one of them are uh, is is a king, is a prince, or is the you know thousands of year old uh, creation myth sorcerer <laughs> and his yes. daughter, right? <laughs> and his, yeah, exactly. Who's slightly less than seven thousand years old. <laughs> <laughs> three thousand years old instead yeah what's a few thousand years among family right yeah <laughs> yeah no it was it, um, yeah and, Ish, you were gonna say something sorry, i was just gonna say um uh, this also reminded me and i think it was something that played out a bunch like in the 80s and 90s but it reminded me of the sort of truth series which was very similar where you had like this guy who was kind of living this very boring life until like this old um kind of wizened guy came into his life and threw everything into disarray. But uh, the, I think that the contrast, though, is that uh, Garion is uh, very uh, clearly a teenager. And they, like, uh, Eddings goes to great lengths to, like, describe him as a teenager, write him as a teenager. The dialogue is of him as a... You, you know he's a teenager. And I, I made the contrast of saying, like, Luke Skywalker is meant to be young in Star Wars, but you're, you don't get the sense that he's younger than like a full-grown adult the reason you know he's young is that you have han solo there to contrast his age but here they the characterization of garyon is definitely more of a teenager and he's a likable teenager which is (laughs) hard to pull off if if uh, you guys know (laughs) i sure don't know many (laughs) no uh, no, that's a i think that's a great point ish um He's a. They do a good job of putting him in his spot, and and they're not afraid. And I appreciate this. Um, he is very much the opposite of a Mary Jane sort of a character who's super awesome at all things. He's he is super awesome at nothing in this, <laughs> and uh, he's being dragged along by his destiny and by these other people in his story. And uh, within this first book, there is there is the very beginnings of a tiny, tiny bit of level one competence near the end of the right. first book. But uh, I really like this. Yeah. He embarrasses himself like at least once with trying to use his magic. Yeah, no, he embarrasses himself fairly regularly, whether it's that or uh, towards the end, they go on a, on a boar hunt and, and he gets massively wounded in the middle of the, uh, of hunting a boar. And, um, you know, um, 
Yeah, no, he's not the most competent. Although, I don't know. Maybe it's... Maybe I've seen too much fantasy. Maybe it's so reminiscent of of the tropes and the formulas that I'm used to seeing. Like, it's so Lord of the Rings in some ways. And it's, in many ways, set up a little bit like a D&D campaign. In that, like, I can oh, see yeah. I can see that, like... He's there and he trains with this person and this and he trains with this person and this and he's learning this from this person. And I can I, I could guess that by the end in book five, he's going to be the, the master of every field and, and able to, you know, sling all the magic and wield all the swords and, and do all the things is the vision in my head, having no idea where this is going uh, of where he's going to be. Right. And it's worth noting, I assume some, some of us have actually read the rest of the series. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, I haven't read it since high school. Okay. Uh, in fact, when you put this invitation out to the the Tome people, um, I have just recently re-picked it up and was very excited to do so. But yeah, I've read all of the story arc, uh, both both series of the, the, the both five book series to do with this, but not since high school. So some of my memories of everything except book one, which again I just recently read, uh, well, are just, fuzzy. That was just a couple years ago, so. Right. <laughs> I was one of those unlikable teenagers last time I read this whole story. <laughs> Jeff, I was going to say along the lines of those troops, it did remind me at near the end in particular when he was uh, coming across things, a lot of Joey Johnson's books, oh. where it's like they're always finding people who are lurking around and spying mm. on everything yep. and stuff like that. Yeah, I can see that, right? There's a little yep. bit of, of mischief. There, there's a little, what is it, spycraft going on from the enemies, right? It's it's not just, the antagonist isn't just the big bad villain or whatever. Like, clearly there's a larger meta antagonist they're aiming towards for later in the series. Uh, but the antagonist for this specific book is somebody who's just kind of spying on them all the time and, and where they shouldn't be, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but now... Yeah, but, yeah, the big antagonist for the possible the end based on only reading the first book seems to be the mad god torak or something like that yeah yeah cal torak yeah 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 Yeah, he's the big he's the big boss at the final level yeah Um, and 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 the story was basically that that uh torak at the beginning of time sort of was the big bad evil thing and whatever and they managed to sort of i don't know seal him away or stop him from destroying everything and so long as they had this like magic orb of whatever um uh, in the possession of a specific like family bloodline then they'd be able to continue then humanity would be able to continue to hold him at bay and they've successfully done so for 7000 years and that's the thing that's gone missing is the orb has been has been taken which means the or- like this is where like when i was going through it and in my mind i'm saying oh this is just fellowship of the ring <laughs> sort of retold from a different with different slightly different mm-hmm. characters uh it was mm-hmm. like well I imagine the pitch was, well, imagine Fellowship of the Ring, but instead of you have the MacGuffin and you have to stay away from the bad guys, it's the bad guy has the MacGuffin and you have to chase them to go get it, right? It's, it's, That's correct. Other than that, it's mm-hmm. basically Fellowship of the Ring, the first half of Fellowship of the Ring. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and uh, that's a that's an interesting twist. And considering that the MacGuffin never actually shows up on camera, if you will, uh, it's still its presence is noteworthy in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was 
what I was thinking of when I was writing the notes for this episode is that uh, the books, when you take them all, and I don't want to go too much into the weeds, we're only on book one. Right. Uh, but you had mentioned how uh, two, the, the first two books came out in the same year, last two books came out in the same year. It struck me like a Pathfinder adventure path okay. where it could have just been one book. But they split it up into six because they wanted to, it to be a little bit more episodic. Uh, and they did it. I mean, it, the, a good job was done because each book is pretty self-contained. But the whole story really takes place. Like you could you wouldn't want to just read one unless you had the intention of reading the other ones and getting the whole yeah. story. No, I would agree. Uh, like I got to the yeah. end of book one and I'm like, um, there wasn't really a, a, a complete arc here. Like, you know, the whole thing was about chasing mm-hmm. whoever stole the thing. And they never really got like there were hints of this like spy antagonist uh, in other in earlier parts of the book, but it was never really a major concern until like the last section of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the sure. large, you know the there, I didn't feel a sense of closure or satisfaction from this book. It was clearly mm-hmm. doesn't no. stand up as well yeah. very well on its own. Yeah, yeah. What I was going to say is, it seems like the feeling I had after finishing the first book again after all these years is that what he's done in book one is he has taken the bowstring and pulled it all the way back. And it's almost like you can see his finger twitching for the release. And <laughs> now it's all going to really kick off. Like all the pieces are now in place and the, the rock is going to start rolling downhill pretty intensely. Well, and, and I guess, I don't know. I feel like it also suffers a little bit for that uh, because it doesn't have that climactic moment. Like it was, it was an entire book of sort of building the story without really the any payoff for what the story is going to be right yeah yeah well you know what that made me think of jeff um and i'm sorry i'm dominating the conversation let some other people talk uh the uh what it made me think of because i never caught this until i looked up the wikipedia article about this book before i started reading it again just to kind of refresh my memory Mm -hmm. and they pointed out that every book in this first series has a chess reference in it and uh, I thought that was a really cool observation. And and that immediately, I used to play a lot of chess. I've moved on to other nerdy things, but there, w- there was a time when I was doing a lot of chess. And, uh, and there's a place in chess where we've done all the initial stuff. And the very next move somebody makes, both players know, now it's on, you know. And uh, that I could put that metaphor on this first book decently well mm-hmm. of all of this has been board placement right. to really get into the actual battle. Nobody's really capturing any major pieces yet, but they're setting the field. Ish, are you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't want to get into too much of like just giving away the the kind of narrative arc you see in the the five books but it's one that i don't think i've ever seen before reading this these books and one that i've never seen after um so it's it's really weird and you really do have to read all five books to get the whole of the story but the the kind of the pieces just to not give anything away the pieces that you think will be there in certain parts of the book are almost scrambled Mm -hmm. um and it's really hard to describe without just saying hey this is what happens but um, if you read all all five books, you you start to wonder like that's not how anyone has ever told a story before. That's not often how you see stories told. Uh, it's it's not quite Tarantino levels of, of scrambling the story, but it's uh, it's just it's different in the way that they've they've set things up. 
That's actually really good to hear because my concern, given how closely a lot of the tropes and the characters hue to, to Fellowship of the Ring, my concern was that the, the story in general was going to be fairly derivative. Um, but it sounds like that's not your experience. No, and, and to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent from that, but something that I really want to discuss is that um, really honestly when I read these books, and it was about 15, 16 years ago uh, before I reread the, the first one, but my, um, my takeaway from the entire series was that uh, David Eddings was not great with pacing. So the pacing of everything is not super great. Like the story that's being told is not... Uh, it's almost not being told fast enough, and in some areas, it's being told too fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his characterization is fantastic. Like you, you grow to, lo- to love the characters. The characters feel like living, breathing people. It, it almost feels like a long-form play is more the, what it is than it is like a, a fantasy novel. Tracy, you smiled at the mention of pacing. Did you have something to say on that? Well, <laughs> I, I think I agreed with I agree with you that there wasn't a great ending to the first one. Like there was enough there that you could call it a book, but it felt like maybe even knowing that it was going to be five books, like if it was only three books, you probably wouldn't end it where you did. At first I wasn't sure if I was going to like it. Uh, And that's because it's clearly a book written by a man Uh, with the, the way, like the whole, even the, narrator and everything else definitely just has this male point of view going through everything but i think they he did enough where it it's clear that there was a lot more characterization going on it wasn't i I was afraid it was going to be overly simplified particularly at the beginning with the way aunt paul was kind of matrony and i don't know how to put it uh but over time things added to it so i wanted to talk about that a little bit or see what you guys thought (laughs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely, no, I, absolutely. Like, yeah, I had the same like aunt, aunt paul started off very much sort of this stereotype uh, uh pseudo pseudo medieval fantasy woman right she's the cook and she's looking after the children and she's got this very like sort of adopted motherly sort of vibe going and whatever um and then it is slowly revealed like she's got more going and even when they revealed that she had more going on that she was actually uh belgarath's daughter polgara uh the thousands year old sorceress herself even then she didn't come off as very interesting to me until that moment when they got to that one town and they decided to somebody decided uh, probably silk right to put on some sort of a ruse that uh, that she was royalty, that she was the, the, the duchess or whatever it was that they were uh, pretending she was. And everybody else had their parts to play. And, and she just sort of leapt right into it in a way I didn't expect her character to, to be that nimble to do. Uh, in a way that totally makes sense for what we know about who she is, but had not necessarily been betrayed to us prior to that moment and she just stepped right into that role she she delegated everybody else telling them what their task like she took charge in that moment uh in a way that i'm like oh oh she suddenly is a lot more interesting of a character than she than i thought she was going to be yeah i would want to say that like in the first book especially yeah, we don't see that because that's a good two thirds of the way through. I feel like when that when what you just described happens, Jeff. But uh, 
you know, she's playing a certain sort of a role in the first part of the book, but over the arc, I, I think she becomes one of the most interesting and over the whole five book arc, she becomes one of the most interesting. And in my opinion, the most dangerous person on that planet, <laughs> you know, because um, her dad's scared of her sometimes. And, and I think he should be, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. that's a reasonable response, you know, um, just because she's man, she is whatever. I don't even know how to describe the power levels of those two characters of, of Belgrath and, uh, and Paul Gary. I don't even know how to describe that. And even though she's the, the younger, less experienced sorcerer, I think if you locked them in a steel cage, he'd beat the mess out of him. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of the impression I get because he he tiptoes around her some, and it's know, especially later in the story. It's interesting because in this book, like you get a sense that that's the case, that they're really powerful and whatever, yeah. right? They've been around alive for thousands of years and whatever. Mm-hmm. And yet it's very like it's very much in line with my concept that it's really just sort of a, a, a variation of the retelling of Fellowship, right? Because Gandalf goes through like the entire Lord of the Rings series with this sense of this this and this gravitas of power and respect and grandeur, but you never really see a lot of crazy power coming from Gandalf, right? He never mm-hmm. is flinging spells yeah. like like crazy, or whatever. And that's very much what these two are in this story, right? They, you get this sense of power from them, but you never really see it. I think the most magic we ever see is when. When Polgara like uh, uh, dispels this this enchantment that was on on the main character, right? Yeah, or when she heals the lady who's blind. Um, yeah, yeah. Those two things. That's and that's the most visible thing because the one she does with Gary and that you just described breaking whatever that charm thing is that's going on in him um, is kind of an invisible effect. While that thing she suddenly does as this huge display of power. You know, which isn't that big. I mean, it's not like lightning falls from the sky and the clouds right, right. parked or anything like that. But, but she does a kind of a, a Jesus sort of a miracle mm-hmm. <laughs> there uh, out in the public eye on temple steps and and makes gestures and makes this blind person see. And uh, although, although but the, with the, an the interesting bl- right, mixed the bl- motive, to the, bl- it. <laughs> the blind person sees it as a curse, right? Because she loses her her right. supernatural vision by gaining regaining her sight. Yeah, she loses her second sight by getting her first sight back. And one of the, so one of the interesting things, because we keep talking about Fellowship of the Ring in comparison, going also with the conversation about like it's written very male centric view in some ways. One of the interesting things I saw though was that we did have a lot more named female characters, some of which that actually talk to each other. I don't. I think that might have even uh, been about a character other than a man or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, so I thought that was pretty uh, cool and interesting about it. And then the other thing is, it's a lot about protecting his innocence because we don't know the full reason why. I mean, we know a little bit from the origin story why that's important, but it was a very interesting thing. Like, because they keep hinting about sex and stuff like that in it, but they have to protect him because of the prophecy type of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Although that pr- that protection of his innocence goes interesting like it's it's to the degree of like she gets mad early on on the farm when he's like hanging out with this farm girl too much kind of kind of protection of the innocence mm-hmm. right right yeah 
Yeah, yeah, it was Zubret. And it's because they're like, well, do you want to wait another 30 years before we have our chance again? <laughs> because mm-hmm. he, he can't have a dalliance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I honestly, and this is this goes, who's read the whole series most recently in, in this conversation? Is it you, Ishmael? Uh, I guess it's 15 years ago. Yeah, because yeah, you, you yeah. look younger than me, so, yeah. <laughs> so so I'm assuming you're 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 whatever time that was. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> I don't quite remember why they're preserving him like that. I, I just um, don't remember, um, and I it's not really clear. Yeah, I have vague reminiscences of it, and I think it has to do with just the way that the po- prophecy plays out. What I do remember is that uh, this kind of uh, story thread comes to um, it, it kind of comes to a crescendo, if you will, uh, in book two because the sorcery the sorcerer's queen or the presumptive sorcerer's queen tries to seduce the main character, uh, and I, I would say that it's uh, giving the story away, but it's right there on the cover. Um, but they they do a lot to to save him from that fate because it would then mean that the prophecy right. would be broken. Right. And I am remembering now that there's a little, I mean, it's just a drop line at the very beginning that he's already has an, an arranged marriage in place. I forget, I just now remember that Aunt Paul in passing said that there's somebody for you are. I can't remember what the exact phrasing was. Anybody remember that? Um, but it was something like that, you know, you know, there's already somebody for you or that's already been appointed or some language like that. And then it just goes right past it. But another sense of destiny, like there's some sort of arranged marriage in his future with someone important. And so we can't be marrying Zubret the farm girl in chapter one or whatever. I just now remembered that. Yeah. No. And I was, I was going to point out though too, is that even this, even though this story is like very young adult fantasy novel themed, it's about a it's about a teenager. Um, it, it is like this kind of adventurous story that you could tell to a, a you know a young adult, a, you know, a teenager could read this. But it does get risque at points, like more than most young adult novels, I think, would. Mm-hmm. Um, and like specifically pointing to the the book too, like it got really it got really risque, and I think not in a way that was gauche, but um, like it kind of set it apart from you know, most young adult novels anyways. I really liked when he played, I think it was with Dernick. Um, there is this, in a, one of the places they visit, there's this woman who obviously is coming on to Dernick. And at first, uh, Garion kind of pretends like, yeah, oh, what's that about? And then later on, when he realizes that they probably had gotten together, uh, he keeps like just needling them just a little <laughs> tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, who's that lady that's talking to you now? Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of character needling in general in this book. That is, <laughs> that is the party's preferred pastime. Is, oh yes, yeah. is uh, it's poking at each other and aggravating each other a little bit, and and uh, although they're also and having like, fun, it's clear that they're aware of like each other's issues, and they they kind of know where to to steer Claire to, to some degree. Like I th- right. I'm thinking of, of the, and I can't remember his name now, but I, in my head, he's the barbarian. Um, sure he is. Right. Yeah. Barrick. Uh, Barrick. Yeah. So Barrick. Yeah. That's right. Who's, who's, he's who's one of my favorite characters. Who's married 
And they reference the fact at some point, long, you know, long after they've met him, they're like, oh, yeah, he's married. And like, wait, he's married? Why is this the first time we're hearing about the fact that he's married? He's like, oh, don't, like, don't. Don't talk about it. Like, let it go. It's not a, it's not a thing to come bring. Yeah. And then he, and then we meet the, the wife later. And, it, and it's a weird sort of relationship. Like, uh, like clearly it was not a, a marriage that continues to, to flourish in love. Like, and there's a lot of needling there. Like the, the wife very clearly mm-hmm. is like showing up and trying to just drive him crazy. And, you know, he's not happy in this situation, but also can't escape it. Um, and, and it's, I, I, I'm, if anything, I'm kind of interested to see where that story goes as well. Um, cause he's got this whole like bear, uh, in my head, it's, it's the, the, he's a barbarian, right? And he's got the, he's, he's manifesting a bear totem, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and so he's got that whole thing going on, but there's like, he's turning into the beast thing that, that he's very upset about and very concerned about and whatever. And she just sort of continues to needle him <laughs> over everything and whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ev- but every now and then you get this oh, little yeah, flash too. of like no no she kind of cares maybe you know uh, so I'm curious to see where that all goes. Mm-hmm. There there's a lot of interplay with the emotional connections with the characters and I think th- that is the one place I would say that you get a lot of payoff where they kind of sew people's stories up. Uh, not everybody's um, Silk uh, doesn't really get to see any kind of a closure to his character or any kind of you know, satisfaction to his character until like, I think another book series, but uh, most of the characters kind of find this uh, emotional, you know, uh, resting place after the five books are done. Okay. I was going to mention about how Beric is just like an archetypical D&D character. Um, Like he's in 3.5, he'd be like a, 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 what is it? A barbarian druid which inspired me to run a barbarian druid one of my favorite characters ever but like he's very he's very D character he's a very like i i can fight really good i'm very strong and also i have all of this these bearish qualities well yeah and he flies into a rage every now and then so <laughs> yes mm-hmm. well like he's but but i feel like silk is also very much a D, like he's clearly a yeah. classic oh, yeah, uh, i would absolutely. say a classic rogue right um, and mm, then, and then we have our, our wizard, sorcerer, wh- however, whatever you want to call uh, both uh, uh, Belgarath, Belgarath um, and, yeah. and, and Polgara are magic clearly users. like, yeah, they're the magic users <laughs> of whatever class you want to call them, right? You know, uh, and, and in my mind, that's and, and Garion's, you know, the, the one who's who's learning. Right. And in my mind, he's, of course, going to multi-class between all three of them uh, <laughs> and, and, exactly. and go from there. <laughs> Uh, at least that's the formula, right? Uh, yeah. And so, um, those, and to my mind, those four make up the party. Four, five. Those mm-hmm. five make up the party. And then there's yeah. some hangers on, some some sidekicks. Uh, no, Silk is uh, almost more like yes, he's definitely your archetypical rogue, but he's almost like a thief acrobat. Like they go to great lengths to describe how he's very agile and like uses these like crazy acrobatic maneuvers. But he's got this uh, almost bard-like uh, charisma to him as well. So, oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. He rolled his Would... stats in order, and he got an eighteen on his charisma. Right, <laughs> that's <True>. it. <laughs> Tracy. So, would it be okay to talk about the thing that was on my mind when I tweeted earlier today? Uh, so, we read this book. It's about life 
and world-changing events, right? And we're kind of going through a whole thing right now in our world <laughs> with the <laughs> global COVID-19. pandemic. Yeah, mm-hmm. COVID-19, the coronavirus thing. And I was just because, so I had been reading it, been keeping up, keeping up about two weeks, almost going on two weeks ago now. Like I started working from home two days later. Um, my whole family is now in our house. So it's like rapidly things change and we are making like these decisions based off of, it's not like we had an earthquake, right? And like, I clearly see things fell over. Mo- for the most part right now, for me, you know, my life's pretty normal. <laughs> uh, I haven't, like my husband and I haven't lost our jobs. We still have to go to work every day. We just happen to have our son, we're working from home and have our son at home now. So I just, it was felt very strange reading the second half, listening to the second half of the book with this like normalcy that's also happening. Like with him, it's just like, oh yeah, I'm just traveling with my aunt now and these other people and we're just going to be doing this thing and I'm just going to keep like being my normal teenage self and uncover like this attempt at the crown and and espionage stuff. So I just was wondering if folks had thoughts about that or anything. Well, certainly it puts, you know, I, I pondered, I saw your tweet and uh, I, I pondered what you were thinking about it. Like I, I got what you were saying, but I wondered what the line of thought was. And yeah, I, for sure, part of what it means is, you know, they're in crisis mode, you know, um, there it's not, the crisis isn't today, but if they don't take very active steps, it's coming in a big, big hurry. And they, you know, they, you know, especially Gary and, and Aunt Paul, uh, completely uproot themselves from everything that Garion knows as normal, and uh, and never sees that old life again, ever. Right. And, uh, um, you know, he will he will find himself longing for the farmhouse, <laughs> you know. But uh, that's <laughs> yeah. that's just that's off the books now. Yeah, it's yeah. just nope. <laughs> that's not where yeah. we are. They even have a yeah. conversation about that pretty late in the book about how mm-hmm. he wishes he could just go back to Follower's Farm and mm-hmm. stuff. And that just, that hit me really hard because I think I, I mm-hmm. heard that this morning. Like, not too yeah. bad, but, because yeah. uh, it's not like a, another fantasy novel where you're obviously, like, fighting, a, like, it's building up to you fight this epic battle with a dragon or anything like mm-hmm. that. It's just this, almost like the frog in the boiling water type of allegory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, we've all, you know, I assume we're all fairly active on Twitter. I see that's that's the only way I knew one of the people in this conversation until tonight. And uh, and we all interact on Twitter a decent amount. And uh, but how many times have you I, I can't even count how many times I've seen that quote from Lord of the Rings pop up on somebody's tweets. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I wish these times hadn't come on me. And uh, well, so does everyone upon who these times come. But, you know, all we can do is do the best with with the time we're in. I mean, that's all over Twitter right now. And there's a reason for that. You know, uh, we're we're in a season of life where there's a crisis bigger than we as individuals can fix. You know, and uh, it's big. It's a big thing It it reorients a big piece of your life. In some yeah, ways, I yeah. wish I wish the juxtaposition between the book and our our lives right now uh, was was stronger because I could really use uh, a wise sage that knew what was going on, <laughs> you know, and knew the right thing to do in every situation to to take this on. But you know, yeah. that's just not a thing that exists, right? <laughs> so I need a Gandalf. I need a, well, a Belgrath. So. 
We've yeah, got yeah. Fallucci, poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> We've but, got a bunch of doctors and nurses and medical <laughs> professionals who are working on, on our clothes, are being our Belgrave or Polgara, yeah. and figuring it out for us and telling us what best to, to do at this point <laughs> in time. So, uh, and we're just here at home helping them be the front lines for us. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is very similar in some ways to, like, Garion's thing, because Garion keeps wanting to, like, you know, stand up a little bit more and things like that. And it's not clear there's any... Uh, that's not the type of heroism we necessarily need right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, one thing I related to Garion, and one thing I did like about the book is how Yes, Garion is obviously the protagonist, the main character of the story, yet every other character around him are much more powerful and much more knowing about the situation than he is, which is mm -hmm. usually different than any other fantasy game where you fantasy story where basically usually it's you have the heroes that are the ones who gain power and are the powerful people and the the mm -hmm. uh, Maybe maybe there is one person who's powerful, like the the one Gandalf that will go. Mm -hmm. So, but in this case, it's yeah. flipped. Yeah, that's right. And I think that we we've we've made a lot of comparisons to Lord of the Rings, but the and I love Lord of the Rings. I have nothing. I have very little negative to say about Lord of the Rings. But uh, the I, one of the glaring differences between that that particular set of stories and this set of stories is the relatability of the characters. You know, not necessarily the likability. I like the characters in Lord of the Rings, and they're they have very specific things I like about them that I treasure greatly. Um, but every one of I feel like every one of these characters in in our story that we're reading is more relatable than any of their counterparts in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, those people are likable but not relatable. They're not as human as these characters seem to be. Yeah, I, and I think one of the one of the other things that's clearly different um, is that, like. Like I think there's there's a period of time about you know ten years after uh, Lord of the Rings blew up that that you know every fantasy series was very clearly borrowing heavily from that because it was just so much in in the the social consciousness if you will right uh, it was the zeitgeist mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. it, we we made the exact same comparison when we looked at uh, Dragons of Autumn uh, Twilight is that in many ways it is also a retelling of uh, Fellowship of the Ring with different characters from a different, you know, some different perspectives and whatever. Um, but I also, I think it's worth noting that, uh, and, and not knowing any other books in the series, this world does not appear to follow the same fantasy tropes in terms of, there's not dwarves and elves and, and hobbits and whatever running around in this world. So far as I can tell, and it's it was never – I never really caught a strong explanation of this other than through context clues. It seems like it's just everybody's human, but there's like different subgroups of humanity because they mentioned like these different, you know, 
nationalities or races or however you want to uh, define it, right? Uh, but and, and there's mm-hmm. even like clearly there's physical characteristics associated with some of these different groups, right? Because at one point, um, uh, Garion sort of says, "Oh, I've always been told I'm such and such," and somebody's like, uh, "I think it was Silk," is like, "Yeah, no, you don't have the you don't look <laughs> like somebody from there. You're not actually from there. Like that's not a thing." <laughs> uh, and, and so, which yeah. makes it very clear, like. And I guess maybe those of you who have read more Eddings and more of the setting, is that – how much is that explained? Because I'm like curious. Like is it just – is it the difference between, you know, Poles and Spaniards or is it the difference between like Europeans and, and East Asian people, you know? I think it's hard to figure out what the – like because it's – of course it's all fantasy and you don't know right. – there's not like an atlas or National Geographic about like the different countries, but I think it would be pro- uh, probably, um, it would be like the difference between Poland and, and Spain, I guess you would say. Like okay. it's just different enough where it's like, no, you're probably not, you know, Norwegian or whatever. And the the, the whole point is that it's, I mean, you, you, you get the idea with the context is that it's to explain his parentage and how he's the, this kind of like, you know, uh, prophetic child or whatever that's been hidden away somewhere. And he just has been uh, given a line his entire life about who his parents are. And I'm sure, you know, I, again, I don't remember clearly when they give the big reveal or whatever uh, about all of that, but like, then they say, Oh yeah, this this is who you are and this is who you're destined to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also another factor that's mixed into this, although I couldn't chart this out without rereading the other four books to totally refresh my memory on it is these people groups are much more directly connected to their God as people groups, mm. you know? And, uh, so there's a, there's not just a, and I'm going to use our terms from our world. Right. There's not just a national identity, but there's sort of a spiritual identity amongst okay. these people. And so that shapes things too, you know, so uh, in this universe, yeah, it's it's, the, no, it's it, each the groups are in many ways then uh, national, um, uh, uh, ethnic and religious. Then, uh, in yeah, the, in the way yeah, kind of, yeah. Uh, okay, and I don't think there's a perfect one to one correlation between every single people group mentioned in the story and a certain god because there's only seven gods, I think, and there's more nation groups than that in the world. But like like the Murgos. Uh, all worship Torak, and so they have a lot of his personality traits in them. You know, they, uh, uh, they, you know, they, they are their identity is tied up in their gods, even if the individuals are not especially religious themselves. You well, know, and so like I- Barak is not especially religious. Like he mentions more than once that he's been religiously kind of behind on what he's supposed to be doing and the priest is going to scold him for it but man they they worship a bear god and boy do they you know and he's <laughs> you know he he's a he's a walking bear man you know um yeah no and and there was moment there were moments when i saw the description of these different groups and whatever and it, and it occurred to me like he's leaning really heavily on the concept of this ethnicity or this nationality having a stereotype that is uh, fairly universally applied, right? Like, like Silk talks about his people are, 
uh, have this kind of a certain kind of approach to politics and society and, and mercantilism and, and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, there was a degree to which I'm like, should that bother me? The assumption that everybody with this sort of same background has, you know, the same personality traits. Um, I, I suppose mm-hmm. to a degree, if they're very closely tied to a specific God, then, then that explains some of it. But it's still it still occurred to me that, like that like that. You're, we're leaning real heavily on the idea of these stereotypes, uh, and, and I wonder if that mm-hmm. how well you know if that plays out as like if the whole "don't judge a book by its cover" thing plays out, or if you can just look at somebody and say, "Oh, well, they're going to be a shrewd negotiator or whatever," you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the first book, I, I just again, it's been so long since I read the others, but in the first book, yeah, there's not a lot of variation. You know, all the Drasnians are like this, you know, and all of uh, Barrick's people whose names I can't remember are like this and uh, and so on. And all, and all the, the Sindarians who are like Gary, the plate, the culture that Garion grew up in. And Dernick is a capital S Sindarian. He is like the he is so much the prototypical Sindarian that they invite him into the royal council. Uh, later on, just so they've got a real strong sense of what a Sindarian point of view in the council would be, even more than the king of the Sindars has, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, uh, one thing that just occurred to me in relation to earlier when Lewis was mentioning about the reference to chess is that in chess, there are seven types of pieces the pawn, the rook, the, the knight, the queen, the king, and all that. And there were seven gods, and wow. each, and each piece had a specific role in the game itself. So, from a narrative sense, that's probably how maybe that was written. That's why that each people, based on their god, have a specific personality because they have a specific role because it's a big chess game. I have no idea if that's true or not, but I thoroughly embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an of, awesome. Oh, I like it. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Well, I've run the gambit of, of everything on my list, but it sounds like Ish has has some more to, to, to talk about. So go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to add that uh, it seems like uh, Eddings probably used the, the the whole nationality thing as a crutch to just uh, you know paint people in certain colors uh, because there's not elves who are going to be elvish and dwarves who are going to be dwarvish and halflings who are going to be like halflings. So instead it's like, oh, these people from this country are going to be like that. And that seems like he tried to make it a much more human story, but in doing so uh, just kind of um, went with that whole, uh, you know, supra nationality kind of mm-hmm. thing. All right, so uh, any other last thoughts, any other last notes that people had that they wanted to talk about? Uh, what's going, what else is, are people thinking about before we wrap this up? Well, I'll, I'll go first, and I'll just say that this is actually my – now, I want to be careful as I use this phrase – my favorite modern fantasy because it was very modern when I read it. It had only been out a few <laughs> years, but I don't know if anyone in the year 2020 calls that book modern now, but I say it is. <laughs> and I reject all theories that all my high school music would be older than classic rock. So, um, so uh, yeah. So for me, this is my favorite modern fantasy series. I just think it's fantastic and I'm glad to recommend it to other folks. Other last thoughts? Uh, I had a blast reading through this book. Um, I very much enjoyed it. Um, 
when I read it like 15 years ago and I, I enjoyed it, you know, even more so now just kind of with fresh eyes and, and a lot of perspective. Um, I would definitely recommend it, but um, just know again, like I, I mentioned, I say this with all the love in the world, the pacing is weird. The characterization is amazing. It's like um, if, if Neil Simon uh, decided to write a fantasy novel. <laughs> yeah, and I find I find that that's true of a lot of books where pacing can sometimes be a little weird, uh, and and I don't know that it's even fantasy genre uh, fiction uh, sort of does that sometimes, where you know they they sprint through through some things, and you're like, wait a minute, that was like I want to know more about that. What are you doing? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but they but the author is trying to rush to the bit that they want to talk about, and you know. I can't tell people how to tell their story, right? I mean, I can, but they won't listen. Right, right. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's right. All right. Now I want to put on a, a full production play of uh, the Belgariad. I think that'd be a lot of fun. There you go. Get on that. All right, then. <laughs> uh, unless anybody else has anything else, we're going to call that the end of the episode. All right. So that is the end. Uh, it's time to say goodbye. First of all, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. And those of you who shop at Amazon and DMs Guild using the affiliate links when you go to thetomeshow.com. Uh, I also want to thank uh, our guests, which is an unusual thing for us to have on the book club. Uh, it's nice to have some other people pop in uh, and join us. So thank you, uh, Ishmael. Um, you are... Uh, what Laura Thorne and Elven Wizard King and everything else on all the social medias. Anything else you want to aim people at? Um, just uh, keep an eye on uh, me uh, at Fat Goblin Games. I do a lot of fifth edition D and D stuff through them. Um, so yeah, just uh, bear in mind that that uh, will bear fruit soon, and I will be putting out a uh, fairy tale inspired setting book nice. uh, very soon. And, and you've done, uh, you've worked on three uh, Aurora's uh, Whole Realms guides. Uh, you're missing a season. Is there plans for the other season? Uh, there might be. There you might, might be. be. You might be pleasantly surprised relatively soon. Excellent. Very good. Uh, and then I also want to thank uh, Lewis. Uh, thank you for, for joining us on this book club. You are Rev Lewis Britton on Twitter. Uh, where else do you want people to go look for you? Well, the place they'll find me most often is Twitter and then in another corner of the Tomaverse over at the Tome Show News, where uh, we publish every couple of weeks with the 15 minute episode and Tracy's on my team for that. And she's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no. Aww, thank you. And, and I, I like that that phrasing. Uh, I always I'm ne I never really want to sh sh call it the Tome Show Network because I'm I, I'm not quite sure that's what we are but i like the idea of the tomaverse calling it just you know we're all sort of in that same universe that, that's perfect <laughs> so <laughs> all right and if you'd like to uh contact us you can send us an email at the tome show at gmail.com you can call our biz line that's 919-b-i-z-t-o-m-e biz tome uh i'm tracy at sarah dark magic with an h on Twitter and saradarkmagic.com. Jeff is at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, or at The Tome Show. Eric is at Eric, E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. P -A -Q. Uh, and you can watch our stream of episode recordings at twitch.tv slash tomeshow or watch the video after the fact on The Tome Show's YouTube channel. Show notes and other great shows are at thetomeshow.com.
And, and apparently, if you get there soon enough, uh, I streamed for like four hours straight um, of the, the the wall behind my desk. I thought I hit stop on that stream that we recorded, <laughs> that I did right before this, working on my Roll20 uh, game. Uh, but I had thought yes. I had stopped, but apparently not. It, it, it had been going for hours while I was up cooking dinner and, and hanging out with the kids and doing all that. So uh, I promise that's Replace not... Replace a Christmas log with a Tom Sophie. That's right. I promise that's <laughs> no, not... No, she didn't what, bring it into the restroom. Yeah. That's not what we... Yeah, that's true. Uh, but that's not what's usually on the stream. Uh, usually you'll find... Um, recordings of us uh recording episodes unedited um unapologetic if you will uh it's just us talking and and doing episodes and doing all of that uh uh raw and then it goes on to youtube afterwards although this week um the week that my uh home game is officially going online due to the coronavirus situation um I've been learning Roll20, uh, and every time I sit down and work on it uh, and try to figure it out, I've been streaming it. I haven't been sending it to YouTube. I'm not capturing the audio for it. I just figured um, people might want to catch the stream, and, and they can go back and watch those videos and see me struggle with trying to figure out Roll20. Um, and, and, and like today, I did it for about 15 or 20 minutes, and I talked through what I was doing, and then it was like, okay, well, I just need to do more of that now. So it was, the stream is just me doing it. And, not really talking that much, but, um, you know, just to see how it works, because uh, I've never really done it before, and Ish uh, was nice enough the other day to come on and, and give me some pointers and help help me out with a few things, so um, that's going on as well uh, at twitch.tv slash show. but you can feel free to skip those, or any of them, right, <laughs> if that's not your thing, so... Uh, in any case, that is our thoughts on Pawn of Prophecy. Up next in May, we're going to be reading Dragons of Winter Night, the second book in the Dragonlance Chronicles series. Um, we read the first book a while back. So you see, we do start series and then eventually come back to them. Uh, and perhaps the Belgariad will be one of those as well. Maybe in a year or so, we'll go and finally read book two. Um, who knows how it'll work out. So... Uh, until then, uh, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.